Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I have a special guest today. Laurie A. Couture is a licensed mental health counselor and the author of Instead of Medicating and Punishing, as well as the bestseller, Nurturing and Empowering Our Sons. She's developing the Couture Protocol, an evidence-based whole child program of treating developmental and generational trauma in children, youths, and their families. Laurie provides consulting presentations, training, and research reports to industries, agencies, and programs that directly serve children, youths, and families. Laurie discovered early in her professional career that our society's institutions are out of alignment with nature's intent for children's developmental and attachment needs. What concerned her most was that the institutions in which she worked, behavioral health care, education, social services, and juvenile justice, generally reacted to children's alarm signals with labels and with behavioral biochemical interventions that ended up causing more developmental distress. She observed that boys especially suffered and withered in these institutions as their needs and natural alarm signals were met with denial, hostility, or punishment. I'm excited to welcome my guest, Laurie A. Couture. Hi, Laurie. Hi, Roman. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. You know, I will say that your like the the pre-interview that you and I had is probably one of my most exciting and inspiring one where I wish we would have taped that oh. as well. But uh, <laughs> so I'm just excited to dive in and I'm going to start off with a very simple question. I've done this before with guests uh, and I want to ask you to you, what is ADHD? What is ADHD? Well, as a clinician and as a parent, I believe it's a fraudulent diagnosis. It's a collection of symptoms of trauma, and it's a label that is given to children, especially boys, um, to make billions of dollars for the pharmaceutical company and to make the lives of teachers more convenient so that teachers don't have to actually teach in a developmentally appropriate way. And um, unfortunately, um, that's what it, that's what the label is to me. Wonderful. Thank you for this uh, very textured answer. I love that. And you have a lot of experience. You've worked in many institutions, but I want to take us back way further. I'm interested, like, what was the first time you personally encountered this term, these words, these four letters, ADHD, in your life? Well, unfortunately, it was when I was a child, my sister and I were children, and we were, um, um, you know, because we were very active, uh, very kinesthetic children, um, and, um, you know, we were going through a lot as children. Um, we were slapped with the label, which by, at that time in the 1980s was called ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. Uh, the H was added in the late 90s. Um, and so that was when I first encountered it. And um, 
Um, unfortunately, other children around us were also labeled ADD. And, and that does have an effect on you because it, first of all, it didn't address the fact that I was on the autism spectrum because the disorder, the uh, neurodevelopmental disability, um, autism, um, was only just getting known and Asperger's syndrome, which is what, um, what I was diagnosed with, um, later on was not known. That diagnosis didn't come out until I believe the DSM-4 in 19, uh, uh, 1994. So unfortunately, you know, children were being given this label of ADHD, ADD for a collection of trauma symptoms, neurodevelopmental issues, and pretty much any behavior that challenged the teacher. And I definitely challenged my teachers. I was a brilliant child. I was extremely and excessively creative, and I just couldn't do school the way they wanted it. And that was back in the 80s and early 90s when, um, you know, there was, a, you know, um, back in the 80s, you actually could still play in the classroom and there was recess and it was very hard for me, let alone when later I entered the field and and kids were sitting in chairs all day long. I don't know. I, I wouldn't have been able to cope. Um, I wouldn't have been able to. So my the school I went to was still very hands-on, very play-based, very project-based. And I still was bouncing out of my seat, tipping my seat over. Um, I have a funny memory of, I remember I was in third grade and one day I was just tipping the seat and tipping the seat. Laurie, stop tipping your chair. Laurie, stop tipping your chair. And I tipped and tipped and oh, I went all the way over. And I remember the teacher comes up to me. She grabs my desk, rushes out into the hallway, sets the desk down very hard, comes in, gets the chair, does the same with the chair, takes me by the arm, takes me outside and says, sit down. And she left me out in the hallway, went in the classroom, shut the door on me. And for me, I just sat there and tipped my chair and ran around in the hallway for a while. Wow. So that's that was actually a better approach than medicating me, certainly. Um, luckily, the drugs weren't pushed on children um, in the 80s the way they were in the 90s and, and onward. Um, so I escaped that. My Luckily, my parents did not believe in and those labels and, and in those drugs. So that was going to be my follow-up question. So you never actually yourself experienced taking uh, medication for ADHD? I did not, thank goodness. But there was a really scary incident. My sister was younger than me, so she 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 was uh, uh, four years younger. And um, the uh, doctor really pressed and pressed and pressed my parents. They gave my sister one dose of the stimulant. And I still, to this day, I will never forget this. It was a traumatic experience for me. Um, she was given one dose and then put to a nap. And I believe she was in kindergarten. And all of a sudden, uh, five minutes after she was put down to a nap, my sister just appeared, appeared in, in the living, like in the dining room. And she was sucking her thumb and all of a sudden she just started crying and my and, and she was acting non-responsive and my mother was just shaking, Caroline, Caroline, are you okay? And she just started crying. And after that, my parents never, never were like never putting her up, never giving her another dose. So luckily for my sister and I, our parents protected us from the medication. Um, but unfortunately for millions and millions of, of children, um, parents are, are 
are just, they are, I guess they don't have the confidence because of their schooling history to stand up and say, no, you're not going to put that poison in my child's body. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always say, look, I'm not an anti-medication kind of person. In general, I'm talking Western medicine. I see it as an uh, emergency, right, for urgent cases. But I think we've now uh, made our Western medicine medication approach more into a one size fits all anytime for anything. And that's what I have a problem with. And I certainly feel that you have the same uh, point of view that before we give someone medication, let's make sure it is life-threatening, urgent, and temporary, not forever, right? As ADHD, in the case of ADHD medications, we are told, the parents, that this is going to be for life. This is something that you're going to have for life and you can't outgrow it. What do you say to that when you hear people, when you hear sound bites in the media of, oh, it's genetic and you have it forever and you can't outgrow it? And what's your reaction to that? Well, it's extremely distressing to me as a clinician because I know that it's not factual. Um, I've I re, I've read multiple of those brochures and booklets that come from the pharmaceutical company, and they actually say right in there that it's not caused by um, by the environment at all, and that it's it's a child doesn't have any breaks in their brain, and meaning as in car breaks, automobile breaks, and it's just. It's very distressing to me to hear that because they're not addressing the root of the problem. Um, it goes back to a quote, in the, I believe it was in the 1960s, maybe 1969, that one of the um, one of the big wigs in the pharmaceutical or the national, I can't remember. I, I really like to have my, uh, my precise citations, but um, I can look it up for you, but I believe it was one of the heads, maybe the American Psychiatric Association basically says, I want everybody on medication. I want to give it out like like it's like it's gum. And I can get that exact quote to you. So maybe you could put it across. You know, I yeah, um, I would love that. It, it It's heartbreaking to me because I feel that we've poisoned um, a few generations of these kids uh, with with not just the, the stimulants and the Adderall and the and the ADA, so-called ADHD medication. I call it drugs. It's chemicals. It's not that's not medication. Medication is like for asthma um, or or for um, you know for something that actually is a medical issue where there's a cause and effect. Um, um, yeah. yeah, these chemicals are dangerous and it breaks my heart that they're convincing parents that this is a genetic issue that this is a brain uh, they, they used to actually call it before it was named add it used to be called minimal brain damage um there were a few different names for it um and so they used to actually call it brain damage yeah pretty amazing and you know you bring up a good point here and i just want to uh mention that because uh, it reminds me of the the kind of uh, vaccine messages of safe and effective, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't care if you're pro or anti-vaccine or in general or just for COVID. But the point here is that you know these mess these these medications are sold to parents with the safe and effective. Where I believe the reality is that they could be safe for certain kids and they're mostly effective 
but that would be more of a realistic description because if as a parent if i if i know that it's a 50 50 chance that something may go wrong i might not medicate but if i'm told oh no 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 it's fully safe and effective right then as most parents that are yeah. are shocked into this new disorder and this new lifestyle that their child's broken and and that they want to make sure the child turns out and goes to school and gets a job and can survive they're going to medicate because well it's said to be safe and effective right but if we were if they were real about how effective and how safe these medications really are based on actual science, this would look differently, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and, and no drug, there is no drug on the face of the planet that's safe and effective completely because every drug has side effects. And 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 especially these stimulant drugs, these non-stimulants, these new, um, these new drugs that are, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to mention any more names, but I don't, you know, get in trouble for that. But um, basically, these uh, norepinephrine um, reuptake inhibitors, um, stimulants, all these different variations. Sometimes they'll give like a clonidine, which uh, lowers the blood pressure. All of these drugs come with side effects. And they are not sugar pills. And parents have been led and seduced into believing that so-called ADHD medication is safe, like a, like a sugar pill, and it's not. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Laurie, let me ask you, so you've worked in a different, uh, um, you know, institutions, right? You've worked yes. in be- behavioral health care, education, social services, juvenile justice, which is just really impressive to me that you've been in all these. And you, um, and I read this in your bio, right, that you were alarmed or you concerned you that most of these institutions you worked at, they reacted to children's alarm signals with labels and these behavioral biochemical interventions. So when did you start? What was, if you remember an incident or a moment or something that had you turn on, I will say turn on these institutions, but woke you up from that system? I think it was before I even got into the, the system. I was always sort of aware of, um, I remember being an extremely perceptive child when I was in school myself and realizing I would look around and say, the adults are insane. You know, I <laughs> I could see it. And so um, when I started to, you know, when I was a young adult and I started to um, pursue my interests and my career, um, in wanting to help children. Um, I started out with volunteer work. Um, obviously, when I was going to school, college and grad school, I would do I was doing various career trajectories to see where I wanted to I, I knew I wanted to end up as a therapist, but I wanted to try out education and, and social services. And so I, I had experience with all of these. And I would say it's actually was in my volunteer work where I woke up to the idea that these systems are not just ignorant about these various issues. And it wasn't just ADHD, but it was issues also. Um, I would say the, the issue that really um, put me on this trajectory of realizing these systems are really deliberate in their um and their refusal to grow and learn was when um, I was doing volunteer work for children uh, who had been sexually abused and going into schools 
to educate kids of various ages about sexual abuse prevention. And I saw that there was this absolutely dogged approach insisting that sexual assault was a female victim, male perpetrator crime rather than a human crime. And at first, me being very young at the time, I just believe, well, they just need education. And I tried to educate them. I actually was successful in training, uh, changing some of the training materials in that, that one particular um, volunteer organization. But as I got into um, college and grad school, and I started looking deeper and deeper into these systems, I realized, no, this is an actual deliberate attempt to um, portray boys and men as predators and females as victims, because it has a political basis and, and political power. And I believe that the whole ADHD epidemic is part of that, pathologizing our sons, pathologizing boys, pathologizing natural boy kinesthetic behavior, um, because it's uh, boys are the primary targets of the ADHD diagnosis. Um, and there's one method for so-called treating it and pretty much one method only uh, that's accepted by the medical field. And so therefore that just reinforces that idea that um, the boy is broken. There's something wrong with him. It's not your parenting that needs to be adjusted. It's not the educational environment that's toxic and developmentally inappropriate. No, the child is broken. He's broken. He, there's something wrong with Nature made a mistake with boys or with girls that were hyperactive like myself. And that's that's the message. Girls that are not the victim type, you know, that are not going to fit that trajectory of going around and fitting that stereotype and and fill it, fulfilling their political, you know, um, agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. And, you know, talking about boys, um, you yourself, you adopted um, a boy, a young boy named Bryson, um, about what a little less than ten years ago, and no, it, uh, over it, it will be uh, no, it was two thousand five. I adopted oh, five. him. Sorry, so it's, gonna, it's going yes. on nineteen years. Nineteen years, of course. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and so I want to just switch to that story. It's a very personal story, and obviously, it isn't all about ADHD, but at the same no. time, we're talking about boys, we're talking about institution, we're talking about uh, uh, past, you know, childhood, uh, uh, as we as, as they're called adverse childhood experiences and so forth. So it's a longer conversation, but I think it's fascinating, because again, it reflects uh, uh, sort of how the system how our systems are all very similar in a way. So uh, just take us you know, through this experience, I mean, what had you decide to uh, adopt a young boy at that time? And, and how did that kick off? Um, I have always known I wanted to be an adoptive mom, actually, since I was nine years old. And um, I wow. have a very personal story. I don't tell this to too many people, but I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, I actually had a vision when I was nine years old. I had no interest in being a mom at nine. I didn't even like to play with dolls. I was a 
tomboy. So this was not like something where I was this little girl playing with dolls and musing about being a mom. No, I, I totally had no interest in being a mom. And I remember one day I was lying on the bed and I was upside down, hanging off the bed. And I had this vision of this little boy that I was going to adopt someday. And I knew it was going to be adoption. And I remember just thinking, huh, this is a weird experience that I'm having. Um, because I could tell this was not a child I knew now. I could tell it wasn't like a brother that I was going to end up having. Um, and um, and it was a very clear message to me that you're, you were going to adopt this child someday. And I just kind of took it with a, huh, okay, whatever. And then just went off on my day like nothing had happened. I do remember being very drawn after that with the Cabbage Patch Kid phenomenon to the Cabbage Patch Kid dolls, whereas I didn't like other, like the baby dolls. I love the fact that you could adopt them. So adoption became a, a theme in my life. And then when I got into, uh, I there were certain experiences where I got to know um, adoptive people. And then when I got into the 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 professional field, the first, um, one of the first cohorts I did some extensive work with, uh, was I was trained to license and train foster and adoptive parents, especially foster parents for therapeutic foster care. So I got very much immersed in the world of foster care and adoption. And I knew at that point that I wanted to adopt because I watched how, um, there, there were certain demographics of children that were considered, and, and this is a term they use called difficult to adopt. And almost always those are older children that are older than six years old. Um, they are children that have emotional disabilities, um, neurological disabilities, um, and they are children that have major behavioral issues, and they are almost always boys. So I decided that because I knew I had the wherewithal um, I had the iron will of being able to work with some very, very difficult children and still be able to just be unflappable with them and show them loving kindness and compassion and and just treat them with humanity that I said, you know, I'm one of these people that could adopt a very difficult child, a so-called difficult to place child. So therefore, I believe that I should do it. Because there are kids that maybe didn't have, don't have as much of a trauma history, and maybe they have a kinship adoption, or they go straight from their right into their from their foster home, ends up becoming their permanent adoptive home. So I wanted to be one of those people to take those children that I was working with that were so difficult to place. And I think one one moment that really made that apparent to me was um, there are. Um, there are these um, recruitment events in the foster care system called adoption parties. And what they are is you take the parents that are qualifying to adopt, and then you take all the children that are, quote, legally free for adoption, and you basically put them in this one big party atmosphere. And it is, oh my gosh, it is so emotionally painful for the children because they know they're there almost like, their grocery store products, but at the same time, it is a good way to quickly find families for these children. I mean, there is no good way to do it. 
But that is, I went to an adoption party with one of the children in our program. I had, I, I, I brought him to the adoption party and I, this particular adoption party was supposed to be specifically for children that were the hardest to adopt. And they were all boys and every one of them had emotional disability or autism or some sort of disability. However, there was one caveat to this. And that one caveat was there were a few boys there that were with their sibling groups to include a few girls. Now, when I showed up at this event with the little boy that was in my program, I noticed that as soon as they allowed the, after the children were all prepared for what was going to happen, as soon as they allowed the parents into this big place, it was at Jordan's Furniture. It was in this giant furniture store that isn't just a furniture store. It's an amusement park in the furniture store. So it was a fitting place for children, but it was extremely overstimulating at the same time. But, wow. you know, bless their hearts, the guys that set this up. It was really good. They've had a lot of adoption type parties at these places. But this particular one for boys was very sad because as soon as they allowed the parents, the prospective adoptive families to come in, they made a beeline over to the girls huh. that were there with their brothers. Not to, and this was supposed to be an event for boys. And to, it got to the point where the social workers who came with those sibling groups of the little girls literally had to almost guard these girls and say, listen, you can't take these kids home today. This is an adoption party. It's just to, you know, to see if there's any matches. You know, they had to pretty much like go see all the single boys out there, you know. And it was just such a sad thing to watch. It was like the mm. kids could tell. You know, and the older boys, the teenage boys, some of the boys that were 18 years old that weren't even getting so much as a hello. Uh, by the end, all these kids were having meltdowns. Mm. And um, so I realized I knew when I became an adoptive mom, I knew that I wanted to be the, the mom that would adopt one of these difficult to adopt kids. Um, I was 30 years old, though, so obviously I had to make sure there was a big generational difference. So I, I didn't want to get a teen that was, you know, only going to be like 10 years younger than me or something. So um, I felt that 11 was a really good age. Um, and so uh, there was a whole process with how I uh, how I uh, my son was identified for me and matched with me. And that, that was a nice story as it was. But um, it was love at first sight. And I knew, you know, way before, and, and I mean that before I actually met him, because uh, the, you, you you are basically committed to the child before he he meets you. Um, I, as soon as I talked to the social worker about him, I knew in my soul, uh, my whole, my spine was tingling. I knew that he was my, he was not named Bryson at the time. And I'll, I keep his original identity private, but I knew that he was my son. Not could be my son. That's my son. And I told the social worker that I said, you know, I, I can't believe I'm going to be just this blunt with you and up front. And she says, well, you know what? I can't believe this either. But she says you would be perfect for him. You know, and she mm -hmm. gave his name and and she said that um, I'm going to put your home study on the top. And it just seemed like there was this magnetism between me and my future son to get us together because it, it was such a perfect match. And when we actually did 
um, that moment we met was, it's, I, I described it, I, it's just like when, uh, you know, when moms describe when they first see their newborn in their arms, mm. I mean, it was, it was love at first sight. Um, we were enamored with each other. It was a mother and son. Uh, everything fell aside. It was like we were up in the clouds together and I don't, yep. I couldn't see the world around me. And so it was a perfect match that couldn't have been a more perfect match. I wish there had been a dad. I wish I had been married at the time um, for him because every child needs a mom and a dad. But at the time, I just knew in my heart and soul at that time in my life that this was the right time to adopt a child. So I believe that there were supernatural forces that were drawing us together and they knew uh, we this child cannot wait until you figure out getting married while you're on the autism spectrum, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, it. you've got to skip that step and just become a mom. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing and very inspiring. And I just want to acknowledge you for, well, a, your clarity, right. Your commitment and for being there for, uh, for Bryson, right. As he was renamed, but, uh, and we'll just call him Bryson if that's okay. Obviously. No, he, he, he is Bryson. Yes. That is who yeah. he is. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Um, and so, while there's many more, there's a lot more texture to that story, and we'll go in and out. Um, I just want to, I want to talk about how ADHD showed up for you guys during your time together. How early did it show up? How was it? Or what? What information did you have around his uh, disorders or emotional states? Uh, you know, and how did you go about that? Well, immediately. So like I said, there's a whole process of months uh, before you actually meet your child that you go through and you meet, you read all the records, um, you meet all the collaterals, um, which are all the people, you know, former foster parents, anybody, psychiatrists, doctors, uh, therapists, former therapists, former foster parents, you meet like the whole gamut of people involved with the child, they're called collaterals. Um, and so you get a really good picture of this child because they want to make sure at least in the state that I adopted from, that you are 100%, 150% committed to this child before they even have you meet that child. And I, I agree with that approach because um, I have worked in, in other states where they don't do it that way and they have a very poor adoption success rate because of that. So I adopted Bryson from a different state from where I live and from where I work because I didn't like the adoption system where I worked and the state where I lived, there were some, there was so much turnover going on. They couldn't, uh, they didn't have, they didn't have the staff to get uh, adoptions going. It was crazy. But anyway, so right from the start, Roman, I was handed um, basically this huge thick file and it listed all his um, neuropsych psychological reports and of course, along with all of his other diagnoses that he had, ADHD, no surprise, was one of those listed because they just give that by default to just about any boy that has that squirms in a seat. So it, it, it was no surprise to me that he had the diagnosis. Um, his true diagnoses were, and he was given these very young, were, um, you know, um, post-traumatic stress disorder and reactive attachment disorder. Um, and, um, he also was, uh, back then they, um, they referred to the autism spectrum when, um, 
with either Asperger's disorder or pervasive developmental disorder or PDD. So he was diagnosed with PDD back then. And um, <clears throat> so uh, I was aware of it from the start. And I also knew that he had been on various medications over those years. Um, and at the time I was going through all this, he was still 10. We would meet when he was 11, uh, right after he turned 11. But I remember at that time, that I was going through the collateral process. He he had a psychiatrist, and at that time they did have him on uh, medication, um, including for this ADHD. And so what was beautiful is, I still I'll never forget the day that now fast forward uh, to November of 2004, when I got the phone call from my son's adoption worker that I was chosen out of the home studies that they, in the people they interview, I was chosen to be his mother. And I, you know, I will never forget that. I was actually uh, doing outreach at work and I was driving back and trying to get into the parking spot. I remember I had that old, those old style cell phones that weren't smartphones yet. I remember I threw the phone, I hit my head on the ceiling of my car, I, I screamed. Um, I accidentally hung up on him and then I'm trying to get parallel park, get the phone. Oh my God. Oh my God. I, you know, I got to call him back and he was laughing. And I remember he said, are you sitting down? And I said, yes. And he said, we want you to be, you know, say Bryson's mom. And I, you know, it's just, wow. but, um, so the fur after my elation and my screams of joy, I said, my first he actually asked me, okay, so now, you know, you are his mom. He will be placed with you. And and you, at this point, can make any decisions that you want to be made. And I said, okay. I said, I, I told him my first two parental decisions. And one of those parental decisions was, I want him weaned off the medication now. I want that started. So fast forward to January is when Bryson and I actually met for the first time. So that that was in November. So from November to January, he was being weaned down from these medic from that Medicaid. I think he was just on that one at that point. Um, he had been on more earlier, but by the time I um, he was having visits with me in January, he was only on one at that point. And so for the third first three weeks, I would go and visit him and take him. Uh, and then it would increase to sleepovers and then weekend visits until finally he moves home permanently. So during those three weeks of our visitations, it was so heartbreaking that I had to give him that medication mm. um, because it would dr dramatically and drastically alter his whole disposition and his ability to con connect and engage. Um, obviously I knew it was important to give it to him because you can't just take a child cold turkey off, off these chemicals, these drugs are dangerous. So obviously I was going to be responsible and continue the taper. Fortunately, by the, by the day he actually moved in, he was completely tapered. So it ended up being perfect. But I remember when I had to give it to him, he would go from being happy and bouncy and joyful and engaged and talking and, and playing and wanting to do all these fun things with me to all of a sudden, it was like this veneer of depression came over him. And he, he didn't, it was like he, his eyes were half closed. 
He didn't want to do any. And now remember, this was at a lower dose now, Roman, because he had been tapered now for a few months. So even at that tiny dose he was still on, everything changed. And for the next few hours, it was almost like our visit was ruined. Hmm. Wow. He had no appetite. He didn't want to drink any uh, hydrate, drink any water. He didn't want to play. He didn't want to go out and do anything. And of course, all he wanted to do was play video games. And at that time, I, you know, at that point in, in our history, I hadn't yet, you know, said, okay, we're not doing video games. Um, so it was, uh, it was a sad, it was sad, sad. And he used to say, mom, I don't want to take this stuff. And I'd say, I know, honey, it's just for another few weeks. I have to give it to you because we got to do this safe. We have to make sure there's a little in your system and then a little less and then a little less so you don't get sick. Because he would say, can't you just not give it to me? And I'm like, well, you're almost, you know, just a few more weeks. So he didn't like it either. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that a lot from parents that, um, you know, at first I thought it was like, well, who likes to take pills and swallow pills and do hold that whole thing, right? But that that wasn't it. Um, there's no. certainly some kids who don't like pills. My son doesn't. But there is something to be said about, you know, kids also not just intuitively, but physically, emotionally, knowing that they yes. don't like it. My son actually told me, and it was, this was later, it, when I got the records, it was, I saw that it was documented. Everything he ever told me, by the way, about his past, I later saw in records was all true. I mean, he had a, 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 just a prodigious memory. I remember him saying to me that he told that psychiatrist, that last psychiatrist, that the medication was changing his personality. And of course, the psychiatrist denied it and just prescribed it to him and told the foster parents to keep giving it to him. And then I, I when I later got his records, I saw that he indeed did make that statement to the doctor and the doctor just basically did nothing, just basically dismissed it. Um, it's really scary to me. I mean, my clients used to say the same thing to me. I, I used to see it. I used to see it change them. Um, so that's why eventually I just got to the point where, um, you know, I wouldn't work with, um, I wouldn't work with, um, a family that wasn't willing to do, um, alternatives, um, uh, because it just, I couldn't, um, I couldn't do my job with the child if they had this chemical running through their, um, brain yeah. chemistry. Yeah. Well, you know, as a, as a mental health counselor, right. I just want to ask you, I mean, you've been around not just boys, also girls, but let's talk about boys here. The majority of the children diagnosed are boys. Uh, you've worked with lots of boys. You've adopted a boy. Um, what did you, how should I say this? So you saw this happening, right? You saw the the medication, yes. how kids change and all that. And then when did you start thinking or piecing it together for yourself? Like what could be the cause for this, let's just still call it a disorder. They call it a disorder, right? The label for ADHD. What well, is I knew, the cause? I, I knew it way before I became a counselor because I, I one of the things that I think the reason that I think outside the box, I credit, you know, the gifts of autism for, for just naturally thinking outside the box. But I went off and did all my own independent research very early on in my career as um, even before I was a counselor, but especially in my very early years, I went off and started really getting into the literature, studying 
Paleolithic tribal societies. I started reading a lot of the literature from the 60s, 70s to the current um, era, current you know decade at the time on homeschooling and alternative education. And I really started to explore that. Um, learning about the Paleolithic tribal societies and what is developmentally appropriate for children, all of that led me into the science of attachment and trauma, way deeper than we were just given the blanket, um, you know, cursory introductory in, in grad school and college. Of course, they do go into trauma because they have to, but therapists do not get the extensive, maybe now they get a little more with the whole ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, but trauma goes way beyond the ACEs because the ACEs don't even encompass um, every every type of trauma that children go through. Um, so perhaps, very early uh, on. Yeah, and Laurie, sorry to interrupt here. I'm intentionally interrupting yeah. so we don't forget, and I think it's a sure. good place. Um, I agree with you that when I, and I'm with you on this opinion, that uh, trauma, it, I mean, look, we'll probably never identify the one cause for ADHD, but I, everything in my experience also points to traumatic events uh, in children's lives and their childhood, right? And so I just want to clarify for parents, could you just kind of lay out because uh, because a lot of people go, oh, there was no trauma in my family. And I always say just because there was no drama doesn't mean there's no trauma, right? Yes. So can you just kind of lay out what from a minimal trauma to like a max, you know, cap yeah. lower, lowercase to a capital T traumas? What are traumas? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, because you're right. It, they Trauma occurs on a continuum or a spectrum. What is traumatic to one person may not be traumatic to another. Trauma, trauma is very individual. And what it is, is a trauma is an incident that causes an overwhelming um, emotional, basically emotionally painful response when a need is not met or there is a terror or fear and the person is completely emotionally unable to cope with the event. They feel powerless. There is this sense of absolute powerlessness to protect the self. So a lot of times, this is a very sensitive topic. And normally I would not be so blunt with this when I work with families. I'm very gentle in explaining this. So I'm, I apologize for my brevity in kind of throwing it at everybody. But the majority of the way that Western and Eastern civilizations, any, any civilization that has gotten away from the Paleolithic parenting and educating, the way that we have been taught to parent and educate, even what's good parenting and good educating, and I put quotes around that, almost all of that is opposite of what children developmentally need. So trauma starts a lot of times in the womb, um, and it definitely starts when a child is born and they are not immediately put to the breast because in Paleolithic societies, that, that are very nature's intent oriented. They just understand, just like every other mammal, if you look at every other mammal that's a carrying mammal, the carrying species, so the, the whole ape family or any, you know, dogs, cats, any of the carrying species, the first thing you do is you nurse that baby with your own milk. And that creates a chemical process, oxytocin, and multiple other bonding hormones are exchanged between the mother and child. 
Unfortunately, that's not what happens a lot of times when babies are born. They are uh, they are immediately taken away. They're born into this very um, sensory, um, hostile environment with lights and, and sounds, and the baby is pulled, and they're screaming, and the cord is cut, and they're whisked away. They're bathed. They're thrown in an incubator. They're basically separated from the skin-to-skin breast-to-mouth contact that has to happen immediately. And if that doesn't, it can be traumatic in itself. Then, especially for boys, one of the most traumatic things that happens to boys that's completely not discussed is the first sexual trauma, which is circumcision. Babies are held down, four-point restraints. The nurse, usually a woman, forces an erection on your son, forces an erection. So that that, that because the obviously the anatomy is so tiny, so that it makes the doc makes it easier for the doctor to be able to administer whatever method they're going to do to basically amputate the healthy prepuce or foreskin. Not only is this physically anguishing and agonizing to the baby, because usually there's no painkiller or just a nominal painkiller given. It is sexually traumatizing and it is emotionally traumatizing because, again, the baby is whisked away from the mother. And a lot of times mothers will talk about how the baby started showing autistic symptoms after this and the baby started showing attachment issues after this by not wanting to nurse. So there's trauma number two. Then you have a lot of times when the child's around two, three years old, parents are told you whack your kid. If they're not listening, hey, you know, trauma number three, big trauma. Parents are, you know, another big, another trauma in infancy is when children are made to, left to cry it out at night. When their cries are not responded to, when they're put in a, in a crib or in a carrier and the, the nature puts those signals into infants for a reason. Cries are supposed to equal response. A cry is saying something in this infant's disposition environment is out of homeostasis, and it, th there is a need for an adult to respond and get that back into homeostasis, whatever it is that that child needs or lacks. And so when the parent gets into a war with the baby, no, you're going to sleep in your crib and you're going to cry, or no, you know what, you need to wait, we're in the grocery store. That that is traumatic. The child's not going to remember it, so they they're not going to talk about that in therapy. They don't remember that. And then what happens is, is if all of that's not enough for the poor kid, and again, we all went through this as parents. You can't be blaming parents. You'd be blaming back thousands of years. The, these cycles have gone back, 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 back. Every every year, every generational cycle, we try to do a little better. This is just to help parents understand when they can't identify, like, say, the types of traumas my son went through. But then what ends up happening is the child is put either in daycare, preschool, or school, or public school. And that is traumatic, not only because the child is separated, but because that environment will never, regardless of whether they go in as babies or toddlers or whether they're in 12th grade, that environment is diametrically opposed to the physical and emotional needs of children, the intellectual and creative needs of children, and to their homeostasis. So a lot of times, though, you won't start seeing symptoms until the child enters school 
And that's when you start to see those, quote, ADHD symptoms. And what those symptoms show us is the child is in distress. They are anxious. They are restless. They are going through a fight, flight, freeze reaction, which is a amygdala-driven limbic system process that they can't control. And what happens is if the, if the amygdala fires off, and that's our fight, flight, or freeze reaction, that is letting us know that something isn't right in that child's body. Now, you won't see that happen. It's all internal. And unfortunately, if that homeostasis is not brought back to equilibrium and the child is not basically soothed, then what happens is that can, that can lead to dissociation and dissoci dissociation usually leads to a trauma. It could be a little T or a very, very large T in the case of something severe like, like outright child abuse or rape. Um, but a, a little T is still a trauma. And so what we see in these, these boys that are exhibiting ADHD symptoms is we are actually seeing symptoms of trauma. And so when they tell you that the child won't do this, won't do that, well, it's because developmentally they can't. So when they say that they're going to put a chemical in their brain to make them do what they can't do naturally, think of the violence that that does to that child's development in their system. And you are certainly not reaching that homeostatic state. That's not bringing the child to equilibrium. You're actually, now you're actually causing dis disequilibrium of the brain chemistry, causing, and, you know, causing deleterious harm systemically. And uh, beautiful. I love, thank you so much for, for giving us a, a sort of an overview of the spectrum of, of trauma. And I just want to say it's perfect because I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, when, when they talk about biochemical or, you know, chemical imbalance, neurochemical, all that stuff, of course, a child whose brain has been forced to make these connections of fight, flight and survival yes. and not feeling safe the chemistry is going to be off, not because they have this thing that we created yes. and call ADHD, but because of what they've been through. And yes. now, now we're giving them chemicals to try to fix an imbalance that's not actually caused by the thing that we can't even medically find or describe or have that's blood right. tests for, right? And now, of course, the chemicals are really off. And then we see odd behaviors like you described in your son and we've heard the the zombie statement or the oh god yeah un, unemotional and it's just mind-blowing to me so thank you for uh laying it out and i just want to say in our case we believe and we'll never be able to prove it but we chose not to circumcise our both our boys wonderful um, good for I you so happy for that because i did do research and there, there are studies that link uh circumcision to adhd and yeah. Uh, there's also studies that and to I found, autism too. and to autism. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's also studies that we found. Um, I think it was out of Taiwan where they uh, studied. Uh, and in our case, it was, we believe jaundice. It was our, our son had jaundice and it wasn't necessarily the jaundice, the, the, the medical condition itself. It was that they took him away from us right after um, birth for three days. And they told ooh. us, you, you can't visit, you can't visit, you know, you, you got to go home. And so we trusted them. We're like, okay, they know what they're talking about. So 
I believe our son had a trauma called, Absolutely. you know, I've been just taken from my mom. That's you know? an attachment trauma is what that Absolutely. is. So basically that can, and also here's a scary thing. One of the reasons women get postpartum, mothers get postpartum depression is when you separate the baby from the mom, both the baby and the mom go through a mourning process of believing that the other has died. So the mother's brain kicks off going into a state of mourning saying, my child died. Mm. And so then she goes through the mourning process. She doesn't do this consciously. This is just something that kicks into gear because the body and the brain see no baby, no baby's there. So baby must have died. So then when her baby is finally given to her after a few days, there's no ability to bond the same way because, well, my baby died. And the baby feels like, well, my mummy died. And yeah. so there is a difficult, so right there you have what's called attachment disruption. So the attachment cycle is the case for all mammals. It's a very exquisite, beautiful, symphonic process, but it's very delicate. And what it is, is it's a four-step process. Um, I, I have it in my book. I could even, um, you know, I'll lay, I could even draw it for you right here, or I can, um, I could lay it out, but let me, let me draw it out for you because it uh, will be sure. a little easier. I'm going to see which way I'm facing here. Yeah, and we, <laughs> perhaps there's a, there's a way to later have this in the show notes where I can have a link to a drawing or something. Well, they, in my book, um, Nurturing and Empowering Our Sons, they can get that. Perfect. Uh, we'll have a link to that. Uh, okay, sure. so I'm going to start with the first three. So, and so do you mind if I, or we can both do it together for our listeners, we can kind of just uh, comment on what's going on. But I see a circle with uh, number one at the top and then two, three, and four going around the circle. Yeah, so what I'm doing is I'm drawing a circle. So picture a circle, and at the top of the circle is a one. Mm -hmm. On on the uh, right side of the circle is a two. At the bottom is a three. And then on the left side is a four. Yep. And so what we're going to do is we're going to draw circular arrows around here from one to two, from two to three, three to four, four back to one. But I'm not going to draw that last one yet. So basically, this is what's called the mammal attachment cycle. Okay, so the first step in this cycle is specific to the child. The child has a need. Number two, when the child has a need. So in other words, child is at um, no longer at homeostasis. Child is feeling some distress of some sort. And it could be any need. It could be a physiological need or it could be an emotional need. But child feels a need. So number two is child expresses that need. Now we know that babies, how do babies express that need, Roman? Well, they cry or they cry. Yeah. You know, so that's yeah. the most primal way of expressing that need. Now the symptom, the, the, the signals will get more sophisticated as the child grows. They will point, they'll show, they'll whine, they'll, you know, they'll cry, you know, tantrum. Um, teenagers will act out. Um, kids that are more calmer, calmer uh, they can tell you. But the point is, child has a need. Number two, child has a need. Child expresses that need. And now here's the magic in number three. Number three is the step of the 
mammal attachment cycle where that's the only step that we can intervene. And at that step, parent meets need as soon as possible or with, responds with sensitivity. So again, we've got child has a need, child expresses the need, parent meets the need, and now for child feels homeostasis. Mm -hmm. So then we draw that last number four back up to number one, and that cycle just continues in that. And when child feels homeostasis, I'm trying to do this backwards here. When the child feels homeostasis, he or she associates those joy, <sighs> comfort, relief, trust, all of those feelings, safety, are then associated with the parent. And this is what's called secure attachment. So the human attachment or the mammal attachment cycle is called the, also known as the secure attachment cycle. But unfortunately, Roman, that's not what most of us and our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents went lived through. And it's not what a lot of our children have lived through. So I'm going to yeah. show you what happens. So what happens to most of us that have not been fortunate enough to grow up in a Paleolithic tribe, the child has a need, the child expresses his or her need, but the parent delays, denies, ignores, or can't decipher the need. Or the response is really cold, sarcastic, invalidating. Well, that doesn't restore homeostasis. The child, instead of feeling homeostasis, now feels distress. And so with that distress, the child feels fear, anger, more distress, increasing distress, panic, and a series of other emotions that will lead to feeling unsafe. And they associate that lack of safety with the parent. Now, what happens is when the new need, a new need comes up, those old needs don't go away. So what ends up happening is it's almost like these unmet needs start to crash together, almost like trains on a train track that, you know, if there's a derelict train that's left on the track when the other trains are coming, you're going to have a big twisted train wreck. And so these emotions that come with distress are that are what's known as insecure attachment or disrupted attachment and unfortunately most of our children are born right into disrupted attachment right from birth yeah. and a lot of that's caused by the medicalization of birth yeah. by like you said the baby being removed from the parents right from the start i was removed from my parents for the for at least three days of life because I almost died at birth. Um, and it's probably why I'm autistic. I, I was blue. I was as blue as the logo here on the <laughs> see. Maybe that's why I love the color blue. I don't know. It may be a whole trauma reactive thing, but my mother said I was as blue as this water bottle and I was not breathing. I was not screaming. And they were beating me on the back. The doctors had me upside down beating me. 
And then when they finally got me to scream and cry, I was thrown in an incubator for three days and my dad could only stand at the glass and long for me. And my mom was now going through that postpartum depression. And, and so, yeah. And this is sadly what our children grow up in. And then you add male genital mutilation or what they call circumcision to that. And then you add, you add, crib sleeping and spanking and schooling and all of that. And then, of course, then the children who also suffer, you know, um, severe abuse and neglect um, on top of that. And yet we are medicating this condition, which is basically these children's alarm signals screaming out for help. And then we throw a drug in that. That's really scary. That drug does not get the child back on the secure attachment cycle whatsoever, does it? No, that drug actually tries to get them to do the homework. <laughs> That's right. That's and to, to do their homework, to sit still, to do the work, and to stay in an environment they absolutely hate. That they, Maybe they don't hate the social part of it, but uh, and a lot of children do because a lot of yeah. children get terribly bullied. Um, but a lot of times kids will, you know, they all, they'll only want to stay because of the social piece. But yeah, they're forced to stay in an environment. It's usually boys you hear that say, I hate school. You know, and the parents say, you have to go to school. No, you don't have to go to school. There is no law that says you have to go to school. There is a law that says there's compulsory education. There is not compulsory schooling. Yeah. Well, wow. So many things. I I don't want to address all of them. That would take too long. But I just want to say you talked about insecure attachment, Uh, something that I realized recently that linked me back to the original kernel of this movement that I started or this documentary or, you know, Mm. point of view around ADHD is that I realized insecurity just really means unsafety. Insecure, not secure is not feeling safe. And it, it was a whole new perspective shift for me because, you know, when people say like, Oh, he's so insecure. She's so insecure has nothing to do with, Oh, I don't like my looks or maybe I'm not good enough. Sure. That's how it shows up in the world. That's how it shows up. But it all goes back to what you were just describing is this, this attachment issue, right? It's all about not having felt safe when you needed something, when you needed love, when you needed comfort, when you needed safety. Right. And so I think while I always say, and I agree with you that trauma is most likely the cause for a lot of these disorders, including ADHD. That's what we're focusing on. At the same time, trauma is unavoidable. We can't trauma-proof people. But how we react to the trauma, how we help our children heal from the trauma, is the, that's where the power is. We can actually do something about it. We're not here, you and I are not here to blame parents for having caused trauma in their children's lives. Look, we all at some point will have caused some trauma for our children or they they will go through trauma. But where can we go from here, in your opinion? What can we do to help our children heal, process the trauma and so forth? What have you seen that works? Uh, what do you advise? Because uh, I'm always excited to share, you know, it's not about tips and tricks, but it is about where do we go from here as parents, right? Well, what's wonderful about this cycle, and I'm going to draw a tree in the middle of it to show this, is nature has a very easy way. It's 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 simple and easy. It, it, well, you know what? I should say it's simple. It's not necessarily easy. But what's beautiful is in being able to fix this 
human attachment cycle, it's not that difficult. It's an extremely simple process. You simply get back on the track. Like it's a railroad track. Picture it as a railroad track in a circle. You get back to number one, child has a need. Number two, child expresses that need. Number three, parent meets that need with sensitivity and, and basically with speed. And then child will start to develop those feelings of safety that you talked about. They'll start to feel relief. They'll start to feel all of those positive feelings, associate it with parent. And there you now start to have healing attachment. Mm. So what I do is I try to help families. Again, like you said, there's blaming is not what this is about because again, we'd have to go back, how many generations would we go have to blame? What we really need to do is have compassion for our children, compassion for ourselves, compassion for our parents, compassion for our grandparents and our great grands and so on. Have compassion for all they went through. It's not about saying, oh, I did my best. I don't have to do anything. No, that we can't, we must be responsible, but we must not blame. And what we do need to do is we need to get our child back on that secure healing attachment cycle. And if your child has been diagnosed with ADHD and they're in a school environment that is obviously developmentally inappropriate, which most public schools are, well, the probably the fastest way you can get onto this cycle is get them out of that environment. And yeah. What I did as a single working mother with an income that barely made ends meet, okay, because I, I say that because a lot of people think that homeschooling is something for privileged people. I've met very few privileged homeschoolers in the homeschool groups I used to attend. A lot of us were, you know, just getting by because, but I, what I did is when my son first was placed with me, I went to this beautiful child-centered school when I knew he was gonna be placed with me like a few weeks later. And I got down on my knees and I begged for a scholarship. And they said, wait, we don't give scholarships here. And I said, well, can you give me um, a discounted tuition? We don't do discounted tuitions. I told Bryson's story. I said, why I just cannot, cannot put him, enroll him in public school. And I couldn't yet homeschool him until he was legally adopted. And that was going to take a few months to get that started. So I just needed a place for him to be safe for those few months until I could legally homeschool him and put together. I was already putting the ducks in order before he was even placed with me to homeschool. But I knew that was going to take a long time, too. Mm. And so what I did is I ended up receiving both. I got the scholarship wow. and I got the tuition discount, even though they never had done it before. <laughs> well, so that, that's amazing. I just want to say, have to be innovative. yes. And I just want to say that to me is a beautiful example of where there is a will. There's a there way. Is a way. And because, you know, here else I saw, this is how I viewed it. You cannot see public school as an option. If you see it as not even on the table, like it pretends schooling doesn't, public school doesn't exist. And then it's like, now get to work. Now, now what are my options? Yeah. So that's what I did. I said, if public school was not an option, how, what would I do to protect my son and educate him? Now, I just want to take 
a, a tiny detour into something that I've recently come to really strongly, firmly believe in, which is, again, where there's a will, there's a way. Because I have a lot of parents who will always, you know, who will say, well, yeah, Can't I'm glad yeah. you could do private yeah. school or you could do this, but I can't. Yeah. And here's the, here's the thing. That's when I bring up my my check engine light uh, example. I believe that that is a moment in a parent's life where they get the opportunity to step up and say, what can I maybe create here that I thought I couldn't create? Me, little me, feels like I don't have money. I can't do this. I can't do that. But what if I could do what, in this case, Laurie did, which is what if I could beg and say, guys, please, here's what's going on. And it happened for you. It can happen for other people, right? So I think that's a, a really it's not a small example, but it's a it's a moment in in our life that we could say, maybe it's time for me to step up here and be more powerful than I think I can be, right? To step into a true responsibility. Hey, my son is dealing with this. What can I do? How can I respond powerfully to this situation versus, oh, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to put him in, in public school and medicate him, right? Again, no judgment. You do what you need to do. But what if this was an opportunity? And you have no idea. I mean, I I lay it out. I discuss it in my book, Nurturing and Empowering Our Sons, what I had to do, the logistics I had to come up with <laughs> in sure. order to homeschool my son when it was time. And when it was when our we uh, we finalized our adoption. And then uh, let's see, that was in November of 2005. So November, December, January, uh, right a week before he turned 12 jumped into homeschooling, had a beautiful party saying goodbye to him at that child-centered school where pretty much he refused to do any work. He, he, I was just like, just please keep him here. Just please keep him safe. He's going to be homeschooled. Just, you know, um, yeah. He made some wonderful friendships there that we ended up continuing. One of them became his lifelong best friend. Um, what I ended up having to do as a single working parent, like I said, on a very tight income, was I had to obviously come up with childcare for the days that I was working. And boy, did was that a Tetris type of a situation. I had to put together, we had a different childcare arrangement every day. And him coming to work with me ended up happening um, for quite quite a few times when things fell through. Um, what what was great is once you start getting into the homeschool community and you start joining homeschool groups, um, you will start meeting other families and then you can start trading childcare. One of the most wonderful things that we did when my son was 12 is we started, my son had a passion for Bionicle, which was a Lego product. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so we ended up starting a Bionicle club and all the, the kids that ended up attending ended up being really close friends. And so we ended up trading childcare. Um, so what ended up happening is when I was at work, these parents were able to step in. In the beginning, my family was able to help with some childcare. Um, we, I ended up putting up in the very beginning, I ended up contacting the local university's um, child development department and asking for them to recommend some students that could come and stay with my son while I was at work. So I did just about anything you can imagine to make it work. Uh, my son did come to work with me. I ended up 
Um, I was working as a men mental health counselor. I ended up reducing some of those hours and taking a side gig, a few side gigs so that I could work um, at a position where uh, my son could come to work with me a little easier. And then as he got older, he was able to, you know, be more independent. And, um, you know, but, but I do tell parents that I don't, no matter what age your child is, if they're a senior in high school, children should not just be left to their own, left alone five days a week. That's not, uh, that's not developmentally appropriate. Um, so it's important that they have solitude time and time alone, but it's also very important that you get involved with homeschool groups, community events, and that there's a lot of one-to-one -one time. And I will tell you a lot of these, uh, children, they start thriving very quickly. There does need to be a detox time. Um, I know one of the homeschooling moms used to say as a rule, as a rule of thumb, um, children need one month of detox for every year they've been in school. Um, so if they've been in school for 10 years, then they should have 10 months to just play. And, and, and when we say that, I mean, not video games, unplug from the screens. You need to allow boredom to come in um, screens were not a part of our, our homeschooling, uh, screens, uh, lead to a lot of these ADHD symptoms too, not, not to mention, um, behavioral addiction. So I do not right. advocate for screens being part of this. Yeah. And I always say, uh, screens or, uh, a bad diet, things like that. Oh yeah. Oh God. Right? Yeah. That's a whole nother topic. Yeah. Right. And they're not the causes. I, that's, I want to be clear. These are things that can inflame the symptoms that, or the behavior, right? These are things that are not good for someone who had their brain wired that way, but it's not the cause. People always ask, what's the cause? Is it food? Is it food dyes? Is it screens? They're not. Well, they're, they're the things you want to eliminate, but well, yeah. refined sugar and uh, refined sugar, dairy, soy, yeah. um, grains um, can definitely affect the gut biome and and yes. cause uh, symptoms. Um, there, it is important to recognize that there can be real serious medical issues that can cause ADHD symptoms, including brain trauma, head sure. trauma, um, uh, poor gut biome because of the. Uh, poor diet for years. Um, there can be um, various serious that I mean, there have been luckily because I never did accept that diagnosis at face value. I had situations where I uh, sent children for medical, uh, everything from neurological to um, optical and uh, full body, uh, you know, workups right. on um, blood and everything. And you wouldn't believe some of the medical conditions that were uncovered. It was very scary to think that if these kids had gone to another therapist, they would have just gotten that drug, that ADHD right. drug, and they could have been dead. Um, so yeah. there can be medical issues and that must be looked into. Um, they can be developmental issues. They could be sensory integration and processing disorders. Um, I was diagnosed in my 30s with a condition called left brain, right brain incoordination that um, also affected um, my the constant motor activity. And what that means is that one side of the brain can't perceive the other part of the brain is there unless the body is moving. And so they were able to do these exercises called balavisics with me to help my brain integrate both sides of the body. Now that's not going to be explored if you just go to a psychiatrist and get written a script for for Adderall. Um, how yeah. are you going to yeah. know that if you just accept that diagnosis? Absolutely. I also I think... had sensory. My son and I, and most of my clients 
Uh, I had sensory integration and processing disorders and uh, especially kids on the spectrum. So there are um, there there are a plethora of reasons that children manifest the symptoms that are a collection called ADHD. While majority of these are due to the educational environment and trauma and attachment issues, there are a percentage of them that are medical, nutritional um, deficiencies and um, neurodevelopmental issues. Exactly. I mean, I want to make sure uh, listeners understand that, A, I'm not a medical professional, but I do agree with you that uh, the majority of the points to trauma, and then there's the the yes. other ones that are based on different, you know, but it's not it's not the opposite way. It's not the other way around. That's right. Um, because I think, again, we're sold this these myths, right? Like, oh, it's it's food dyes and oh, it's, you know, yeah. it's genetic yeah. and it's all these these things that actually scientifically have major studies disproving the myth disproving it yeah they used to say when i was a kid that it was uh uh you know the yeah the they called it food additives and 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 my kindergarten teacher convinced my mother to put me on this crazy you know no additive diet not the paleo not not something that actually removed you know the toxins but it, and of course it didn't work i mean so um so that was the big thing in the late 70s was the the you know i don't know if that was called the atkins or something but um one of the things that we did is um you know we my son and i went paleo in 2009 um i i had to do it because i have crohn's disease and um i was on my way to getting type 2 diabetes so obviously my son wanted to be on the journey with me and boy, did we notice a dramatic um, change in his mood and his behaviors when uh, he always was 80% paleo. We never did a hundred percent for him because he didn't, he wasn't reacting to um, rice and, and uh, the rice grains. But with me, I did do, a, I was a hundred percent paleo by 2014. And I am telling you, Roman, I feel better at 49 than I did at 29. And yeah. so it's amazing what it will do for you and your child and their health to get the refined sugar and grains and dairy and soy, especially soy, which is contributing, I believe, to the transgender phenomenon um, because it's uh, soy is an estrogen. So you're basically in the year 2000, they put uh, this estrogen in the food source that um, people are eating by the by the mouthfuls, just thousands and thousands of pounds of this uh, soy. It's hidden as to cofferols, soybean oil, um, soy lecithin. Um, and this has been in the food source since the year 2000. And that's about when we started noticing uh, <clears throat> boys developing gynecomastia, which is breasts and really kind of puffy bodies. Um, obesity, and then uh, boys, it, the transgender phenomenon actually started with boys. And then it's just been more <clears throat> uh, a, a wave of it with girls since mm-hmm. 2019, especially. So yeah, I mean, you have to understand that what you're putting in the child's body <clears throat> has an effect. Absolutely. And since we're talking about paleo, and you mentioned paleolithic societies before, I just want to jump back to something you you said earlier that always comes up, right? It's that why is it mostly boys diagnosed with this disorder? Now, I have my sort of clear internal alignment with the answer and what my answer is. But Tom Hartman was a gentleman who I had the fortune to interview as one of my first interviewees, and he kind of kicked off or inspired 
uh, me to go on his journey. And he has the hunter versus farmer theory that, uh, uh, you know, and I don't want to get too far into it, but basically uh, whoever was hunting uh, yeah. needed to be more aware of the environment. If not, they would have died while doing so, right? And their families would have died because they wouldn't have brought back food. So their kind of skill of taking in more information and having to be really hyper-focused was needed. And today we call this ADHD, but back then it was really a skill, right? And one thing I noticed is that, you know, somebody told me, well, not all men were, you know, it wasn't just men that were hunters and it wasn't just women that were farmers. And that's true. There was actually a small percentage of hunters that were women. And interestingly enough, it almost overlays with the percentage of ADHD boys versus girls. So to me, it makes sense, again, that these young boys today are born into an environment that doesn't actually celebrate uh, uh, and even like make use of the skills of a young boy and then young man and later a man, right? Uh, it's actually we're, what's the word? We're uh, constraining their masculine skills because nowadays we don't go hunt animals anymore. I mean, some people do, but for the most part, we have to go out and hunt money to bring money back home to feed the family or we have to right hunt the next job, the next career, whatever that is. Yet at the same time, we are... Uh, and since you mentioned the transgender movement, I think there's a what I call a cross. The wires are crossed such that we're we're cutting down masculinity and we're celebrating an almost unhealthy femininity or masculine femininity. I don't even know what to call it. And regardless whether you believe in this or not, or you support it or you're against it or whatever, I do believe, like you said, that boys are really they're in the crosshairs of, I don't know who, trying to tame them, trying to tell them to sit down, don't play, don't go outside, be quiet, listen up, uh, you know, don't be toxic. Just, I don't know. What what do you think they want them to be? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't know. What do we want our boys to be? That's a lot to unpack, and I will, I will, uh, <laughs> yeah. I will um, respond to it. Um, I, I have heard that theory. Um, and I think it's just a way of trying to reverse engineer what we're seeing. Um, I don't believe ADHD symptoms are a skill. I believe that they're symptoms of trauma. Something is is wrong. Um, I think, though, that what he is trying to say is that boy behavior is being pathologized. And, and I believe that boyness and maleness in general are pathologized. So here's how I see it. Boys and girls but especially boys, are naturally supposed to be moving. Paleolithic children were not, uh, this This was pre-farming. Farming actually is when we started getting patholo pathological as a, as a species, because when, as soon as you have to start farming, that's when you have to start um, neglecting the children in order to keep animals and people out of your, out of your um, crops. Um, hunting and gathering is very different than than when we switched over to pastoral farming. And it was uh, men, almost 100% men that were the farmers. Women gathered, men hunted. When it switched to pastoral agriculture, that changed. Um, the gender roles were very specific, not because they didn't think women could hunt, but because that was just what fit better for their society was for the men to do that so that the women could take care of, you know, doing all of the other tasks that were crucial that they needed to do, basket making, gathering, taking care of the, the children, 
while the men went and had to lift these heavy, heavy duty animals um, and carry them back. That that's yep. it would almost been ridiculous to expect women to do that. So anyway, um, Paleolithic children, and I will also say modern homeschooled children, never stop moving from morning till night, whether they are five or 18, natural child behavior is to go, 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 go. Move the body. Children learn through the body. They they learn through moving their body in time and space. It's called proprioception. They need this. And boys especially have to be kinesthetic. And I do believe that's part of the hunter thing. But to label that ADHD is incorrect. What we are labeling is that this is not ADHD. Children naturally, by nature's intent, move. They never stop moving. And when they do stop moving, it's because they have intrinsically found something that is extremely interesting to them. And because it's intrinsic and nobody is forcing them, they were able to sit down and attend to it. For example, if they wanted to sit and listen to the elders tell a story or in in unschooled communities, when my son, for example, was running a chainmail workshop, all the kids of all ages came around and sat and listened to Bryson show and tell them. And then they sat down at the table and made chainmail with him. And then everybody, including my son, got up and started running around again. Because nobody was saying, okay, kids, get over here. You're going to sit down and you're going to be quiet. And you're going to listen to, listen to this presentation. No, they could get up and leave anytime they wanted. Bryson could have gotten up and stopped doing his presentation if he wanted. There was nothing, no one telling them. So I want to be clear that the maxim that Fred Rogers and Captain Kangaroo and all people have been saying for generations that play is the work of children, yes, it is. We mock that now by telling children that they have to, you know, preschoolers sit in circle time or tell school-age kids, sit at the desk, get up and move with the bell, stop touching one another, stop doing this, don't do that, be quiet, raise your hand, don't, don't ask to go to the bathroom, don't ask for a snack, don't, don't ask to go outside. And, and we do this from the time they're toddlers up until they're 12th grade and are graduating. And then we expect these, these imprisoned people to now live in a uh, constitutional Republican democracy, which is ridiculous. So I want to make it clear that in Paleolithic cultures that understood children's needs, they understood that children, especially boys, needed to be moving all day long. Children played from morning till night. If they wanted to help out and imitate the adult activities, they were free to do that. Sometimes an adult might have said, hey, can you help me with this? And they were free to do that. They were given, the young children were given miniature bows and arrows and miniature baskets to do. And if the child got bored, they could get up and leave. And the, the adult didn't say, stop, you know, you need to come back here and do that. It was very different when farming, pastoral farming, and the farming agriculture came into being. At that point, now you're expecting children to work. Parents were not available to provide hugs and nurturing and an affection. Um, so I see it very differently. 
I think we need to let children be children. And we need to eradicate this idea of of building factory schooling, as John Taylor Gato calls it. Yes. Dumbing us down, right? Yes. Um, Beautiful book. Yep. Totally agree. Highly recommend that book. Also, there's, uh, I think it's called Vitamin N, I think, for nature. There's a gentleman, I'm blanking right now on his name, but he's all about nature and play. Um, And I love, absolutely agree with you. There is an epidemic that I think it's just whether you look at it politically or even spiritually, but I think at least we can say there's a capitalistic uh, movement that's that's trying to tell us that we should be, everybody should be working, grinding hard, make a lot of money, buy a lot of stuff, and that disconnects us, right, already well, from our children. I don't think it's capitalistic at all. I, I think it's it's been it's a civilized thing. It started with agriculture mm. and it continued with um civilization, then industrialization, communism, every single ism has practiced. I just it. mean it like right now it's, what we're it's about seeing making is money, the, you know what I mean? It's yeah, about making right, more money. Right now it's about like you talked about the misandry, I call it, the basically maleness being pathologized. I think when you pull in the political and the, I think that that comes out of a right. Marxist ideology that we, you know, um, to we must pulverize the maleness now. It's toxic and, and overthrow it, just like the Marxist ideology that the proletariat has to overthrow the bourgeoisie. So right now, males are being pathologized. And one way to pathologize them is to label their behavior as either toxic or or some some mental illness. Um, and then medicate that, drug that, punish that, um, or uh, basically go through these struggle sessions of now you have to renounce your toxic masculinity. One way or another, we're basically saying to our sons, you're no good. And and I believe that that is what has led to part of the suicide epidemic in boys and young men and men as well. That's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've talked about this recently, too, where... You know, to me, in my opinion, toxic masculinity is the wrong term because uh, men that are behaving badly out there, giving other men a bad rep, they're just boys that haven't grown up. And we can't blame them because there's trauma in their childhood. There's trauma in our society. Uh, Sure, we need to be responsible for our actions, but at the same time, it, it doesn't do us any good. It doesn't move society forward if we're blaming individuals for being not grown up yet or acting yeah. traumatized or irresponsible but what we need to start looking at is is those systems and i think again for the listeners right what can you do as a parent right now what's the one thing if we if i'm asking you laurie what's what do you recommend to parents listening saying yeah but where do i start uh you know i gotta have my kid in school and you know got diagnosed uh, what do i do i'm busy ah help me out here well, that's why I'm hoping parents will read my my two books, especially nurturing and empowering our sons, because I, I lay it all out, you know. And um, but basically what I would say is take public school off the table, make a plan. If if you really cannot do it, if there you find that you that there is no way to do it, and usually that's not the case, almost anybody can, but let's say you can't, then make a plan for the future. Look for some alternative educational environment. There is much, much more out there than just public school. Um, there are there are charter schools out there. A lot of um, a lot of 
the public school systems have a have a charter and that is basically free education you can put your child in a lottery for the for the charter school there are various types of uh, private schools. There are homeschool co-ops. There's a new thing that came out of the pandemic called learning pods, where basically the school system will pay for a hybrid of homeschooling with basically groups that get together with a, you know, usually a former teacher. It's not homeschooling, but it's very similar. So, and it's a lot like a homeschool co-op, but learning pods are awesome because you know, that that's a, there are so many ways. There's also, I'm not a fan of putting a child in front of the screen, but you can do, there are, uh, there are online schools. There's night school. There are a plethora of activities. I, I dedicate a whole chapter of it uh, to it in nurturing and empowering our sons. And I, I, I give every single, um, I give every single alternative, what I call a nature's intent grade so that you can see the pros and cons of each alternative to public school. And um, and they range from an A plus to an F. So um, that's the first step is getting the child out of an environment that's harmful to them. Um, if you think the symptoms are coming from, from not coming from the school, but from something else, then what I would recommend is if you know of a trauma, then try to find an EMDR therapist uh, 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 to, to work with um, that works with neurosomatic trauma treatments. Um, EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing um, basically targets the trauma in the limbic system and basically helps that trauma process through the cells of the body and um, moves the trauma to the part of the brain that can process it, the prefrontal cortex. Now, talk therapy cannot do that. You will be in talk therapy your whole life. It cannot do what um, it cannot do what EMDR can. There's also another trauma treatment called somatic experiencing. There's neurofeedback that has had some success with so-called ADHD symptoms. Um, it's sometimes known as EEG. Uh, biofeedback or neurofeedback, but keep in mind, uh, biofeedback is not neurofeedback. They're very separate. Um, so there is a, there are a great number of alternatives out there. There are also holistic um, treatments out there that you could try. Um, again, sensory integration therapies can help um, children that are hyperactive. Um, a lot of times there is a sensory integration issue. So you can look into sensory processing therapies and uh, OTPT for sensory integration. So there is a tremendous amount out there that can be done. But the most important thing you want to do right this minute is you want to increase your one-to-one -one nurturing time with your child, whether they're very little or whether they're an older adolescent. Take the time one-to-one, -one, hug your child, hold your child, listen to your child, go out and do activities. With boys, they love to talk in the car. Take them out in the car and go on a let's yep. get lost drive. <laughs> oh they my love god, to I just talk did, in the car. Just go out did, to eat. Yeah, know? just funny that you say that. I just had that happen with my uh, 14-year-old uh, yesterday. Amazing yeah. conversation in the car. Like every time we're in the car now, was something amazing comes up. So I love yes. that. Yes, they love driving. Oh my god, I take my my nephews and my, I love the drive. Um, my knee, I noticed the difference. The girls tend to like to be more face to face, facing one another. My niece loves that. Uh, you know, my son uh, you know, always 
you know, it was always better. My son was a little bit of a hybrid. He liked both, but my nephews, they love to just be in the car and talking and, and, or, you know, so put the screens away, please. Don't, don't yes. think of quality time as watching a movie together. That, that, that's, that's something to do once in a while. Quality mm-hmm. time is going out and doing something active and sporty with your, with your son or doing a hands-on activity, go build something together, do an art project together. Um, do a do just go out into a local park and have a picnic. I mean, do something. There is, I have a whole chapter listing just hundreds of activities that you can do as a family. Yeah. I think the key, the key message here uh, that I'm hearing, maybe I'm projecting my own truth onto this, but really is like disrupting the, the, the hamster wheel in the rat race, right? Because we're all, we're so in it. And I noticed it with our son that when we started to really disrupt it, get out of the rat race, switch environments, change the diet, less screens, more exercise, better yeah. schools, you know, better child-led schools, calming yeah. down, calming down the nervous system, right? That yes. makes all the difference. And I will say to, to your point, to parents listening, like it was a lot of trial and error right? Like you said, you got to try, do this, try no food dice, try the different diet, try different school. Like I hate to break it to parents, but it's going to take the trial and errors because there's no one size fits all. There's no quick fix. It's going to take that. But now seven years later, I have to say my son is like, it just brings emotion to me even just talking about it. He's already, I can say he's already turned out quote unquote, like he is okay. Like he yeah. will be fine. And your child is worth it. Your child. Yeah. There is nothing more yeah. important that you could be doing with your life right now than being there for your child. Your child has one childhood. They are only dependent for 22, 24 years. And after that, you're not going to get that back. No. You know, no. Uh, hold their hand for as long as you can. Snuggle them. You know, don't push them away. Don't say be a big boy. Don't don't push away their vulnerability and their affection. Um, ADHD is trauma. It is something in the body or brain saying something is not right with me. Mommy and daddy help me. That's what ADHD is saying. Um, They the child is not going to be able to say that with their own mouth. Their well, behavior is showing it to you. Yes. Nature I, is showing it to you. Nature's alarm signals. Yep. And that brings me back to a quote that Gabor Mate, who I had the privilege yep. of interviewing, said to me, he said, look, when they're acting out, when kids are acting out, look at it as charades. They don't know what yeah. they can't say it. They don't know what how to communicate it, but they're acting it out. Mm. And that's a, that shifted a lot for me. I was like, yeah. oh, wow. Even if they're, we think they're old enough to say it, they don't know. They're not emotionally intelligent enough yet, right? You know, your 21-year-old's not going to remember that uh, he he wasn't breastfed. When you're seeing the the acting out behavior, regardless of the age, um, you you have to be the sleuth. You have to be the, the the detective, the Sherlock Holmes, and determine what what's going on here, you know, and and look at the patterns, look at when did this start? Um, Did I see symptoms before? And, you know, for kids in public school, it's almost always the public school. Once in a blue moon, um, 
Sometimes a child will have an amazing school teacher one year, but then unfortunately they don't have that same teacher the next year. And so um, that's the problem is you might have a great elementary school, but the middle school, which middle schools tend to be horrible, that tends to be almost the year that the teachers and administrators are the most hostile to children is in middle school. They, they, they're just the, the level of violence towards the child in middle school. And then in high school, it's certainly not going to get much better. So what I see is your, your child's trying to tell you something. And I, I've sadly been in situations where even when a child is telling their parents they're suicidal, the parents just won't take them out. Um, so parents, you must have the confidence. You must realize every single animal parent in nature is equipped with the ability to educate their own child. Um, you can do it and you have to ask yourself, what kind of school system is it? If they have, if you've gone through that whole school system and you can't educate your own child after going through that school system, what kind of school system is that? Right. Why would you want your child educated by a system that has caused you to believe you don't have enough education when the reality is if you just let children learn by their passions and interests, you don't have to do any external teaching usually. Um, yep. I, I very, you know, my my son, you know, once you detox, once they detox and they start following their real passions off screen, um, you won't be able to stop them from learning. You there know? we go. There we go. I love that. And um, I just want to say that I love it. Your child is trying to tell you something. I'm a big believer of that. And perhaps yeah. we can we can leave it at that. I mean, you and I could go on forever. And I think we should do a part two <laughs> in the future. We will. Um, but yes. leaving leaving our listeners with that, like if your child is trying to tell you something, how could we as the parents listen? What What could we listen for? And like you said, like Laurie said, slow down. There's a need, right? Connect with our children. And over time, like a muscle, we're going to get better at it because we weren't raised. We weren't taught, like you said, in school, right? To to do this. And you will get this in Laurie's book. I will post uh, links to the books and also to your work. And it's been an absolute pleasure of a journey to go here down with you. This This has been an amazing conversation. I just want to thank you for not only what you've done uh, for your, for yourself, for your son, for the adoption foster world and the work you've done. Um, it's just so inspiring to uh, talk to someone who's really committed to making a difference. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much, Roman, for the opportunity to talk with you and with your audience. I, I enjoyed it immensely myself. Uh, me too. And I know this will make a big difference for a lot of people listening around the world. So I'm excited to see what kind of feedback we get i'll keep you posted and like i said we're going to do this again so thank you laurie and until next time thank you so much roman 